2: Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A-licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest today is Michael Lothman. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you, man?
3: Good afternoon, man. Really good, thanks. Really good. How are you doing?
2: Yeah, very well, thank you. Michael, obviously, you know, originally from London, but where are you based at the moment, man?
3: Uh, I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa at the moment. Uh, Peak summer, so it's pretty nice to be here at the moment.
2: A complete contrast to what we were receiving out here, man. It's freezing, man. Literally. Um, (laughs) But look, I'm sure there's, you know, we'll find out how you made your way over to South Africa. Um, Before we get into that maybe just give the listeners and the, and the viewers a bit of an insight around who you are, what you do, and we'll kind of go from there.
3: Cool, perfect. Um, yeah, always a tough question to ask when you say, like, who you are, because you don't want just, to just say you're a coach because there's far more to people than just, like, the job they do. But, from yeah, from a sports perspective, I'm a passionate coach, um, also passionate about football, but coaching is really the area that I, that I specialise in. Um, I have done other roles, um, such as analysis, sports science, um, but, yeah, coaching is kind of the area I specialise in. In my journey, um, went through doing my UEFA B license, A license, um, of course the FA licenses and youth awards, uh, but also went down the traditional education part of doing my uh, master's degree and bachelor's degree in sports science and coaching. Um, and along the way, had some great mentors that helped out and some staff that really supported um, my journey. Um, but yeah, with the passion for coaching, it's just taken me to about, I think about five or six countries in the world now. Um, yeah, to trying to pursue that and just and sticking into the the higher or the most competitive environment possible to test my ability.
2: Nah, that sounds brilliant. And obviously, you've, you know, throughout the time you worked across a range of different environments and, you know, working in youth and senior football, but I just want to take you back a second now, you know, because you, you talked there about being a coach, you're also an author. You've also recently book, <laughs> So talk to us a little bit about that as well.
3: Yeah. So I was in my third year at one of the clubs I was working at and, uh, and I would say like the role that I was in was no longer challenging for me. It was kind of like, a, you know, there's certain roles where you go in for the day and you complete your tasks and then you go home and there wasn't really too much of a challenge point. So I decided in that last year that I was going to write a book. I was going to put all my knowledge so far from coaching into, into well, it didn't start out as a book. It just started out as a document. But then once I started sending it to a few coaches to ask what they thought, they were like, no, you've got to publish this. Like we need this. This is good for the industry. So then, yeah, then it kind of turned into a book And then I planned on just like releasing it and not really charging much money. And then all of a sudden I got so much feedback and got a publishing offer. Um, So then I realized, well, hold on, this is actually valuable material, you know? And when I put a year of work into it by the end of that year, I thought, no, I must now do this properly. I must publish and put it on Amazon and things like that to get it out. And yeah, now it's doing really well. And I'm just currently writing a second book at the moment, um, which is probably uh, more suitable for a wider range of coaches. And the first book was very scientific, psychology, pedagogy based. This is now a coaching session. So it's actually practical sessions coaches can take. And we know coaches prefer doing that than studying at times. So, uh, so yeah, this one is probably more practical for those that are part-time coaches or doing it on the side of their of their other
2: roles. Awesome. Awesome. And I, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, I, I guess, the, the rights and wrongs of that potentially as well. But, you know, as I mentioned, you know, you're currently in Johannesburg, uh, originally from London. Um, I so think we mentioned off here that you kind of picked up the accent now and it's kind of stuck with you a little bit there. So, why don't you take us back to the start of your journey and just tell us a little bit about where you began your coaching journey in the, in the first place?
3: Yeah. So, I played football until I was about, I'd say, like 13, 14. And I just kind of fell out of love with playing. I don't know why you get to that age where there's girls, there's other things going on in life. you just not, football didn't become a big thing. Was never a great player. So, I wasn't going to be a professional with the mentality I had and the ability I had at the time um so yeah so then I took a couple of years of just not really caring about football but then at 16 17 really got into football again um started coaching just in the community community at 18 um for foundation sports um in Essex and East London um and then yeah at that point it wasn't really serious but then as I was doing my sports science degree um year by year it kind of got a bit more serious I did my level one level two um and then I got then I started getting into like more professional jobs. So going to Watford as a sports scientist um, it was really really key in my development. I was like in the academy three or four days a week, and you start to now see a professional environment, which is just important at that age. I think I was 19, 20, and I was seeing what a day-to-day professional youth football environment was like. And at the time, I think Jaden Sancho was part of the academy then. Uh, Bernard Mensah was part of the academy then. Some players that went on to do really well professionally. Um, so yeah, then I was then from Watford, I went to Tottenham Hotspur. And I was doing football development there, but it wasn't in the academy. It was kind of the tier below that where you kind of you get your in-service done by the academy. So Chris Ramsey was delivering our in-service training and I was able to go into the academy and watch sessions, but I wasn't an academy coach. So what I was basically doing was going into the academy to watch, taking the in-service lessons from Chris Ramsey, who at the time and probably still is now one of the best on the field coaches I've seen uh, for sure, Um, by taking that level of detail and taking his experience and taking the academy staff's experience and going to execute it in my own environment where I was pretty free to go and coach and, and use it by doing it in my own way as opposed to following like more of a rigid structure. Um, So yeah, that was really powerful for those two and a half, three years. And I just got to do some really, some things that really motivated me further. Like I coached a game at White Hart Lane. Uh, It wasn't obviously a Tottenham players game, but it was a commercial game. But I was a head coach at Whitehall Lane, you know, for me as a Tottenham supporter growing up, it was just a massive thing. Um, So yeah, lots of really good things, met some of the first team players, watched some of the sessions, so really powerful overall experience there for me. From Tottenham, um, I went to Dagenham and Redbridge because I now needed to be in an academy. Um, So Michael Hyde, who I think you interviewed before, he took me into the academy at Dagenham and Redbridge and gave me huge opportunities across the age groups. I mean, I think I coached from development centre all the way up until under 18, so coached a wide range of age groups when I was there um, which just gave me like a yeah a more sense of confidence of that coaching at that level I also got to watch the first team train in the mornings so seeing a league two club on the brink of relegation and what that environment is like was again another huge experience and then from that experience I actually uh, started coaching a Sunday league senior team I think I was maybe 23 or 24 but I knew I wanted to go down that head coach senior team path so as I started coaching uh, a team in uh, called Haino FC um, which again like for me lot of the team is amateur and most of it involved drinking on a Saturday night and then playing on a Sunday morning with a hangover for most of the players anyway but just that experience of working with adults at such a young age was really critical to understanding how to behave how to carry yourself um, how to work with adults when you're not even really an adult yourself I was still probably quite childlike in my behaviors um, so that was a really important experience but then when I got to 25 um, I completed my master's and my bachelor's um, already, so and I completed my A license, and it was like right now what you can't jump to your pro license without some real big high level experience. Um, I didn't want to do my PhD because I just about got through my masters; that was tough enough as it was. So, what's next? and "How am I going to get a head coach role?" So I kind of looked at British football coaches abroad. There was a platform that Matt Ward ran. I don't know if you're familiar with Matt Ward, yeah. but he kind of opened up doors to see what other coaches were doing abroad. And I remember I went to Zambia on holiday for two weeks. And when I was there, I was just talking to people about the idea of maybe me coming to Zambia. What would it be like? I met with some agents and some coaches. And then, yeah, from there, I then went home. I didn't have a job offer, but people said, no, if you come, you'll get a job. So I kind of packed my bags, booked my flight. And then after I went, I went to Zambia. Yeah, it's a long story now. I think about it. But yeah, Zambia was a head coach in Zambia for three or four months. I was working for a club for maybe nine months in total, but a proper head coach for maybe, I don't know what the time was, three or four months. The rest of the time, he was technical director. Yeah. But again, I was head coach of the Premier League team there. It was a crazy experience.
2: Yeah. Oh, you know, I'm going to pause you there for a second. I'm sure there's there's, there's many more roles that have come, come beyond that. Let's let's unpack <laughs> some of that stuff first and then, we, and then build that journey out so we can get a better picture and understanding of just exactly what you've been through and how, and how that's actually shaped your, uh, I guess, your your way of working now. So if we go back, you know, 18, 19, you, you know, you, you're doing a sports science degree. You know, you're working in the academy at Watford as a sports scientist. I guess the question is, at what point did you decide it was coaching that you were going to go into? Um, and was that even a thought during your time as a sports scientist? Or did you start to then start having more solidified thoughts around that once you moved over to Spurs in, in, in the football development role?
3: Yeah, I think in the first role, so where I was already doing community coaching at 18, mm. but it was it's coaching, but it didn't feel like coaching. It felt more like babysitting slash I was also teaching PE, teaching lessons in a school at the time, so it didn't feel like I was a coach. Yeah, but it was when I went in Academy, rather
2: than development. yeah,
3: hundred yeah. percent, it didn't feel like I was a professional coach. It felt like maybe I was just a student coach or someone learning, or, or more of a teacher than anything actually. Um, but then when I was in Watford Academy, and I saw the coaching sessions, and I saw the way the coaches operated, the the respect they had, the influence they had on sorry, the influence they had on the players. Um, Like we would have 30 minutes with each group of players in a two hour block. So it'd be 30 minutes, this group, 30 minutes, another group, but the coach had an hour and a half. So the impact they could have on the players was just so much greater. So I think seeing that and then that opened my eyes to say, no, coaching is definitely the step, the path I want to go down. But it took being in that environment to see that and align Mm -hmm. myself because initially I was thinking I was going to be a sports scientist I did a year as a sports scientist and realised that wasn't me at all because I didn't realise it was so gym heavy and so uh, physical heavy because I was more psychology, pedagogy and nutrition and things like that.
2: It's interesting you say that because, you know, for those that maybe aren't within the game in a full-time basis or have access to to it uh, on a general level, a lot of the people will probably think, what does a sports scientist actually do? and i guess the easiest way for me to sum it up well, sports scientists is really heavily working in the physical corner if you if you want to break it down to something so but the the question is is especially with the coaching the way it's gone now and then, you know people talk about trying to blend all the different aspects of the, of, the, of of delivery of the program in terms of if you use the four corner model with the fa as an example how do we blend those four corners so i guess in terms of the sports scientist uh, stuff to start with how did you find yourself being able to have an impact on that and was it just solely the physical or did you have to start thinking outside the box and how you can get more benefits from the 30 minutes you might have had in addition to the hour or the 60 or the you know the, however long it is they had with the outfield coach or whatever that might look like and in, in addition to that what role did you find that then played in the way that you maybe started coaching yourself
3: yeah I think I went into the, year, it was like a, an internship year for my university degree slash, like, it wasn't through the university, but I had to go get it myself. But uh, I think in that in that year period, I think maybe 90% of the sports science work I did was physical, was physical work. But I think what started happening is as there was some more trust in just that they could see where my expertise was and see that I had some knowledge around psychology and nutrition and elements like that. I did start to be able to do workshops with the players for 15 minutes at a time, 10 minutes at a time, going through some basic nutrition bits, going through some basic psychology bits. Um, And then I knew that I felt more at home because of course, that's also more like a classroom and I've been a teacher or I've been teaching. So it felt more confident for me to be standing in front of a group explaining things. than it was for me being in the sports hall, doing squats, lunges and stuff with the players, which anyone who knows me knows the the gym is not somewhere that I spend much time. So, Definitely, I found it more comfortable doing that. Um, And in terms of the way that it's impacted me, I think an appreciation for the physical element is probably something I didn't have before. I don't think I really appreciated the elite level physique players needed um, and how important that was in a development structure. So I think having that experience taught me that, although you think it's about football and you think it's about coaching or you think it's about technique and tactics, the physical element is still a huge part to consider. So, I think that played a big part in that physical early corner.
2: Just on that, and you know, because I, I, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I've, I've actually had a background in, in well the fitness industry and whatnot myself, so I've, you know, and I've got really good appreciation for how much impact the physical elements can have. But maybe for those that aren't really looking at it from that perspective, just maybe highlight some of the considerations that you might think or variables that you have now started to consider as a result of that. So, for instance, I know some of the things that I start to think about is okay, how do we incorporate some of these. Um, some of the movement patterns that they might be expected to perform within a technique, whether that be striking the ball, whether that be peeling off a defender or whatever that might look like, how do we incorporate that and, and build, the, build that, being that more functional, if that makes sense?
3: Yeah, no, I think there's a few things like that. I think the, the the movement was a big thing because you think that it's all about strength and speed, but we did so much work on just the movement patterns of the players, uh, injury prevention work, things like that. I remember, having players doing Spider-Man moves. So if you can think about how Spider-Man moves across the floor, we had Spider-Mans as a thing that the kids would do at under nine, under 10, under 11 already, um, which was all about the hip flexors and open up and being more flexible to deal with some of the movements that have to do. So there was so much more thought behind it than I ever kind of appreciated. And I think until you go into a high-level academy and see or a high-level first team and see some of that work, I think it's I had no idea before that so i think even now i've kind of every environment i've gone into injury prevention and movement work movement prep has always been something that i've expected to see and actually you go to some environments that you think really and they don't actually have that in there so that experience already gave me some ideas of what should be incorporated um, regardless of what environment you're actually working in
2: definitely and i, I tell totally, you i totally see where you're coming from and so, okay, so you you know you've you've started to develop that understanding and that appreciation for the physical corner but you've obviously got your heart heart set on actually being a coach and moving down that pathway so you've moved over to Spurs now talk to us about that and what does that look like on a daily basis obviously you got to manage at White Hart Lane I don't know how much of a privilege that really is because it's White Hart Lane (laughs) Uh, separate conversation but talk talk to us about you know what what was that like you know moving over there what just maybe describe what the nature of the role was and, and and what that looked like
3: yeah, so there was a development program which kind of worked with kids that weren't ready for the academy yet um, or players that were younger than the age that they could be in an academy. Um, so we kind of ran those programs at Tottenham's old training grounds. Um, do you remember there was a dome uh, in Chigwell? So we ran it out of the dome there. Um, but also the good thing, we had international groups come in and train. So you had a group from Japan, a group from Holland, uh, a club in Thailand, for example. They all came to train uh, with us in the dome as well. So we was running... It was for the players that weren't good enough for an academy, basically, but also had international groups that were good enough. Uh, So we had some really good international groups come over. Um, It also involved doing commercial stuff. So uh, coaching some of like Investec was a sponsor, for example. So we'd coach uh, Investec events. Um, So again, coaching senior players, which was, again, another massive, I say senior players, senior workers for Investec that wanted the experience of playing football in a professional environment for the day. Um, so things like that. It was, it was such a wide variety of experiences, but I think the biggest thing for me was uh, the in-service training. I remember we went to one in-service training session with Chris Ramsey, and just like the level of detail that he had in his in his approach to coaching and and when he's teaching technical elements was just it just blew my mind at the time.
2: Just just on that, you know, I totally agree with you. I I, I think he's definitely for me any one of the best techni- technical coaches I've ever seen. Um, deliver um but on that just you know maybe share a bit of a you know delve deeper onto that and, and maybe share a bit of an insight in terms of what you mean by that because there's a lot of coaches out there when we talk about technical detail especially maybe some of those coaches who are a bit, maybe more in their infancy um of their journey maybe don't appreciate just how important or just exactly what is meant even by high level technical detail
3: yeah so i think Give you an example like we, you might do kickups with your kids in your team, right? When they're young, right? And we think, Oh, yeah, they're improving their ball control, which is great, right? You are, but there's so much more they're improving than that, especially when you go to the next level of okay, they're doing inside kickups and outside kickups, so inside of the feet and outside of the feet. And actually, what you're doing is you're enabling their hips to open and their knees to be more flexible so they can use they can actually put their leg both in and out, which is obviously an injury prevention element and will help you later on in your career in terms of executing actions. So if you like, for my body now, for example, just where as a kid I liked doing inside kickups, I never did outside one, my hip doesn't really it, it go on the outside. It only come, comes in. There's there's words for that, the sports science words that I'll try to remember one day. But uh, yeah, my, my knee, my hip only opens up to come inside. So small things like that, there's probably loads of players with those kind of deficiencies as an adult. Like he's already trying to deal with those at six, seven, eight, nine years old before they even get into an academy. But not doing it through sending them as a sports scientist to is going to now do specific movements with them. He's doing it through football. So the kids don't even realize they're doing these things, but their body is now adapting to be kind of more an elite level athlete through the football elements that he was coaching. So even the twists and turns that the players were doing, the way he was coaching the twist and the turn and getting the body shape right, and then putting the impact into the ground right so that you can accelerate off. There was so much detail around around those kind of things. I remember he had all the coaches, the heading. He had all of us. There were maybe 20, 25 of us. And then he was just like making us head the ball back and forwards to each other, just looking at our heading technique. And he was almost laughing at some of us because like there was just no detail in our, the way we were heading the ball. Like there was no movement of the neck. It was just kind of like stiff body movements. And that's how we're teaching kids.
2: And, and I totally agree with that. Just to pause you there for a second, I, I think it's a really good point. Um, and it's not just specific to heading, but it could be any, any technique in the game. And, and I think especially, again, you know, for a lot of coaches who maybe aren't considering themselves as much more technical coaches, but maybe think about them being being skilled in other areas. And this is where I think the coach education pathway has probably kind of had a shift as well, because now I think there is, a, there is less appreciation for the technical elements that go into coaching. Um, you know, I know certainly when, you know, you went through your licences and I went through mine, that I think prior to me doing my A licence, it was literally... Old style. I think my, my, the the group that I did that I did my A license with was the first one of the new the new format, if you like, um, and it was literally pass or fail. Before, and you had to had to demonstrate a certain level of technical detail as well. And I think that for me has has been lost a little bit. So I think there isn't the same amount of appreciation for just how important that technical detail actually then becomes. So off the back of that, what my observations have been is that a lot of coaches just are now just getting in the routine of just setting up practices and exercises with players to, players to participate in, giving them maybe challenges to kind of, you know, maintain a consistent level of uh, success, if you like, not necessarily high-level quality, but that quality could then only be impacted by the technical detail that goes into that. But then they often miss the fact that actually the reason why this isn't working or that isn't quite going right is because the technique is not quite right and the technique could be based on how they place it, how they're striking the ball, what part of the ball they're striking, what part of the foot they're using, the timing of it and all these other things that kind of, kind of maybe could come into that. But instead, they just kind of reinforce, no, this is what I'm looking for, but never actually give the detail or the bit, you know, the, the key to the recipe, if you like, to make it work, if that makes sense. I don't know what your thoughts are on that.
3: Yeah, I think, like, for me, the bit they missed out and they still miss out on a lot of uh, coach edu- education content is the why. And people don't understand the why... Or the why they're doing things to then understand when they can identify and when they should diagnose a problem with it. So, if for example, if a player is having success doing inside kickups, but they're not actually extending their heart or putting their leg high enough, they're maybe not getting the benefit of the hip flexor. But if you don't understand that they're doing it for the benefit of the hips, uh, then you're not going to understand that they're not doing it to get the effect. You're going to see a kid who's doing good kickups with the inside of their foot, and not because you don't understand the why, you can't now rectify and change it to make it better to get, to meet the objective. So like the bit that I always talk about with coaches now um, is like objective-based coaching. It's like know why you're doing everything, if you know why you're doing it, uh, then you can correct it if it's not if it's uh, even if the, pro- if the process is wrong, but they're meeting the objective, you can hopefully still correct it.
2: I hundred percent agree, and it kind of it, you know brings us full circle a little bit, right back to the top of the conversation where you said that you're actually releasing a second book now that second book is, a, is is going to be developed around you know practices and different exercises that play coaches can use. But I think it's really important still for coaches to remember that the why piece. So if they're going to go with that practice, because just because it's in the book doesn't mean, right, I've got to use it and it's going to work. You've got to also understand why you're selecting that practice to work with your players. And I think that's, for me, where a lot of coaches do sometimes go wrong because they just, you know, I've seen Michael do this session. I'm going to try it with my players. It doesn't quite work. But it's having that deeper understanding of the why like you said as to why why is that practice the way it is why has it been designed that way why are the you know the distances in that in in that way but it's also even within that understanding that the practice shouldn't be used as a a blanket template if you like it, it should just be loose it's a, it's a loose structure that you can play with based on the needs of your players um, but also understanding, coming back to the physical part now, where depending on the role that the player plays in the practice, we'll also, have, we'll also have different outcomes. So as an example, a lot of people like to do patterns, but they don't understand that actually sometimes when you're doing a pattern, in some cases, I'll give you an example. If we're doing a pattern and we're working towards a goal, you know, attacking in the wide areas or whatever it may be, the players who are working in the wide areas are probably going to have a high, much higher physical output than the guys who work in the central areas just naturally, but then the coach sometimes doesn't recognise that and doesn't understand, actually, this person's working a lot harder than this person. So now, how do we now bring up that person's physical output, if that makes sense?
3: A hundred percent.
2: So I think 100%. it kind of links back into what you're saying there. But, you know, let's just go back to the Chris Ramsey for a second now. Again, I think he's excellent, excellent coach, great technical detail. Now, a lot of people would say, though, that actually, in the way that he works, you know, it is almost a bit rigid. um So there's a lot of detail that goes into what he does. But then the the, the 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 flip side of the argument is, a lot of people would say that maybe a lot of the work that he does do is 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 largely unopposed.
3: Yeah. Look, I think I look. I've gone for, I've gone so many around so many circles with this, and spoke to so many people about this topic, and I think my conclusion to coaching methodology is that it's better to have a way than no way. And the thing that I appreciate with Chris is he has a way and he's very strong in the way that he believes. And it's not perfect because no one has a perfect methodology. Like you could say that Barcelona are the best at producing players through their methodology, but they haven't produced players every single year. There's players that have dropped out of the system and haven't made it. And many of them. So no one's got a perfect way. They can say every player I coach makes it and develops or is successful. But I think what becomes really, really important, and a lot of coaches are criticising this coach and criticise this coach and say, this one's methodology is wrong because of this, but they don't have a way. And it's easy to criticise others when you don't have a way, but once you've got a way, it's almost more efficient.
2: Well, see, it's interesting because I, I I think it's, you know, it's that age-old debate, you know, how much benefit does unopposed practice give you as opposed to maybe a pro's practice? And I think a lot of that comes down to the detail, but then the other side of it is if we're now prescribing... If that's what you know, if even that's the right word to use, for prescribing uh detail on the technical aspects to players, are we then restricting their creativity in terms of how to deal with the problem themselves? Or is it, it again, there's it, no right or wrong here, it's not a critique in any way, but yeah. it's just an observation. And I think the, the, the other side of that is by again, by giving them that detail, are we now limiting them in terms of understanding how to then solve the problem, or are we best placed to maybe just have that collaborative conversation with, with the players to understand what, to, for them to develop their understanding of what the problem actually is that they're facing, if that makes sense?
3: Yeah, it's a, look, it's a, it's a question that's never going to end. Like, I personally see it much more on the opposed side. I'm very heavily on that side. But I also can appreciate that there's coaches that have success on the unopposed side. and where, And where that may produce a certain type of player, that player's gone on to have success, right? But... The thing that i try and say to coaches to avoid doing and you probably know a lot of them because you probably talk to coaches more than i do but uh but the the challenge is that there's a lot of coaches that sit on one side but don't have a way they don't they can't say this is my way of coaching so they criticize unopposed coaches but well, they don't have a way that's going to do better than them. They don't have a way that's actually working, and they can prove it. And that's what it's all going to be about yeah, in the end,
2: right? I, I totally agree with that. I mean, just to clarify, you know, I, I do think unopposed practice does have its benefits. I just feel that, uh, from my my own personal way, if, if we're going to go that down that road, is no matter what you're doing, there needs for me there has to be context, whether it's proposed or unopposed. Okay. It has to be context. It can't just be right with. And it's not a context in the say in the sense of. Like like you said, you know, I'm 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 using the inside of the foot, so I can you know open up my hip flexors, and I can get more uh you know in, invert inverse inverse movement off that and whatever that might be. For me, it's no rocket. Okay, well, where does this action, whatever action we're working through, whether it's opposed or unopposed? If it is unopposed, how do we still give that unopposed technique or that movement, that pattern, context? Um, and I, I like to use the idea of this you know essentially using the traffic light system right when is the green light for this to occur when would this happen what are the variables that would have to fall into place for this to be the likely outcome if that makes sense Uh, and it starts to you know build the picture and build the context around around that moment rather than right edge of the box we're just going to strike the ball into the goal okay yeah but when would you strike it in that way what would cause you in a game to strike it in that manner
3: no, hundred so, percent. I've
2: worked,
3: with, really I've worked, with, I've worked with, with finishing coaches before, and and, and defensive coaches, or people who have been really specific and been really heavy, unopposed work. And there's been periods of time when I've seen absolutely no benefit from it whatsoever from mm. a from a high level, uh, professional environment. So, so but, but so I went from the point of being really frustrated with that and saying there's no place for it. To actually, understanding that what was missing is the link. So to give some context of, like, coaching a professional side and you've got a coach that's working with the wingers, for example, who's just working on the wingers crossing, right, unopposed. Now, my my previous opinion would have been this is a complete waste of time. But my opinion changed to actually this is fantastic work, but there has to be a bridge. It yeah. has to be something which now connects this to the real game. So it might be that they're doing 15 minutes of that a week, 20 minutes of that isolated a week, but on two other days of the week they're doing a pose crossing in a game situation and now you're measuring to see whether they're taking the detail that you've given them in the unopposed environment into the opposed environment. So I think I've gone from it's again, it's like you go back, you go back to context. But one thing I'm sure of is that unopposed work does not directly translate to a full match. I, I
2: totally agree with that. Oh, I, yeah. I think a spot. Often, no. <laughs> so yeah, I guess you're... You
3: get, someone's going to tell me no, but the throw ins translate because they're unopposed or a goal kick translates. Well, yeah, they, translate. they, there they, are penalties. I mean,
2: and these are good questions, but I think you're the, 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 the off. The answer that i would just throw back at them is okay well what was the reason why that ball was played like that in a throw-in? what was the reason why that particular ball was played off a goal kick or off a off of a free kick now there's a stimulus somewhere and if those stimuluses and, and those variables aren't then factored into the unopposed work whether that be through shadow play whether that be through just visual imagery whatever you want to call it then how much can we then expect from the player to go and transfer that directly to the game game situation so I'll give you an example you know I, I, like, I like to look at it as all right we're on a, we're like a thermostat so we can dial the pressure right down or we can dial the pressure right up where we get to the full game or we can have, start with very low no pressure, just passive defending, just so there is context of the picture that we're working in. It could still be unopposed in that respect. Um, I'd consider it semi-opposed, but some people would argue that is opposed or or even unopposed. But I think it's really important to understand, okay, I'll give you an example. I went to watch a session yesterday Um, and there was basically a passing exercise, a combination play exercise that the, the coach was doing and the ball was the ball was always looking to get beyond the defender, but I'm saying I was, the question I was challenging the coach with was, well, if this is the same ball every time that's going in, then you're not actually challenging the plays to think about the timing of the pass or the right pass that needs to be made. Because all they're thinking about is the pattern of the of the movement that needs to take place. So it's just going from Michael to me, to him, Michael to me, to him as an example. But now, if we now say, right, okay, in a game, Michael's got the ball. What would make Michael pass it to me? Well, he ain't going to pass it to me if he's in acres of space, that's for sure. And if he is, the question is, would you then be happy if he did that on the game day? Or would you be giving him a different message? Now, the question I ask all coaches to kind of really have in the back of their mind is, if there's a decision that your players are making in your sessions, which you ne- you wouldn't necessarily be encouraging them to make on a match day, then it probably shouldn't be happening in your session either. So if there is a pattern that you want to go through, you've got to ask, yourself: so at what point does that then encourage that player to make a particular decision? So I guess in this example, I might say, right, Michael's got the ball, he's moving forward. Michael's only going to release it to me once he knows that the defender is committed towards him and not towards me, if that makes
1: sense. Yeah. Because oh, if the defender
2: yeah. is somewhere in between us, you're probably thinking, well, I don't need to pass it to you yet because I've still got time and space to move myself, if that makes sense.
3: No, no, hundred so percent I read yeah.
2: it. And I, I think I think more coaches need to start thinking if you're gonna go down the unopposed route and if you're not if you're not too sure maybe how to apply the context to it, just to ask yourself, right, when might this decision take place in a game? What would encourage a player to make that decision in a game? And it's not to say that you're gonna make that decision for the player, you're going to make or you're gonna take away the decision making from them, but there needs to be some sort of appreciation and consideration for the variables that will impact on that decision and the timing of it, if that makes sense.
3: No, no, hundred percent. I think the the area where I probably focused on more when it comes to unopposed is that if you look at the decision making process in detail, one of the one of the critical things is picture recognition. So seeing pictures, right? Mm. That's a that's a, so seeing the trigger for this picture to be on or off. So like you, the example you gave of playing a three ball for a running behind, they've got to see that picture in the first place, and then they've got to identify whether it's the, whether it's on or not right Sorry. so the bit that you're looking at which is the which is a massive bit is you can't identify whether this on or off if it's not opposed because you don't know you don't know if the defender shifts two yards to the right or left is it still on is it off you don't know unless you have the defender in the situation so that picture recognition bit is probably where I use unopposed the most so in my last role where I was head coach we did a lot of picture recognition lot love it because the players I was working with hadn't seen the pictures that I needed them to understand yeah they hadn't they hadn't used the pictures that we needed to have success within the game model. so yeah,
2: but I think even so on that the just for a second I think the really key thing there is often and it, this is this is what again a conversation I was having with a coach recently as the coach, you know what you're looking for, you know the picture that you're looking for, and it's not just necessarily say and, and I, I think it's interesting what you've just said that it's not necessarily maybe the players maybe not have seen the picture maybe they just haven't had an appreciation for that before in the way that you're kind of now maybe breaking it down for them so they've probably experienced it now i mean maybe i like to keep things a bit, little bit too simple to a point but i think there's only a certain number of actions that might occur in each given moment and i think if we can go down that picture recognition pit by actually maybe exposing them to some of the different images that might come up within each given context and i'm not saying i've got all the answers or anyone's got all the answers but if we can give them a good range of options that might arise off the back of this one little moment then maybe we can be more specific and targeted around maybe what is the primary outcome that we're looking to achieve within that or the primary picture that we want to evolve off the back of that and maybe what's the least prioritized one at the same time if that makes sense
3: yeah no definitely i think that yeah i think the picture recognition element, it's another tough discussion. I think depending on perspective, on the game model you're using and the level you're working at will just vary how much pictures you need. So, for example, if you think of Man City in the final third, they're probably, I don't know, I can probably identify maybe eight or nine patterns that they use on a regular basis. But my assumption would, my assumption would be, I don't know, because I haven't been a Man City to watch, or I have, but not been purpose there, um, my assumption would be that they practice those unopposed to demonstrate the picture, but then potentially he allows a lot of play with, with opposition to now get the practice of identifying for themselves which one they're strong at and which one they can use, which will translate into the game, and which one they struggle with and which one is less effective.
2: But I think also within that goes goes to, uh, I guess, if you like, the reflection process around, right, if we did get success with this with this with uh, this pattern or that pattern, in the in the practice in training, uh, maybe that reflection piece with the players to maybe better understand right. Okay, what allowed us in this particular moment to get that success that on the next repetition we we weren't able to, and trying exactly. to trying to move that away from necessarily the the technical um, competency and the technical execution, but actually right, what was the tactical part here in terms of how the opposition was set up, where they were positioned, how far the distances and angles and whatnot that then put a spanner in the works for us, if that makes sense.
3: Especially in the final third. My biggest the, my biggest criticism of maybe the coaching industry and myself also is that we go, when we go coach final third, we go straight to patterns because you, have, you, you don't have an overload with numbers because you're in the final third. They're, the opposition is probably going to have more numbers than you. Um, so it's hard to coach it's hard to coach success opposed. Very, very, very difficult. So the natural assumption is let's do crossing and finishing. Let's do long shots from outside the area because that's the kind of it's the fear thing of my my session is not going to look good if I'm coaching final third and we have no success. So that's where the area where we have to step up and we have to be able to paint pictures and then give the freedom for the failure because the failure is going to is what's going yeah. to teach them.
2: I think I think that's a really good way of looking at. It. I mean the way the way I would uh, kind of view it is. You know, you've got, you've got the aspect of coaching players and aspect of managing players. I think it, when you're doing that sort of work, it's maybe, maybe spend more emphasis and put more put more emphasis and spend more time on actually managing the challenge that they're facing, if that makes sense. So I'll give you an example. If we are doing a pattern, moving into the final third, it might be that in total we do 18 repetitions. The first six repetitions, I might be saying, right, OK, the opposition, I want you guys to be shirt tight with every single player in your, in your, in your zone. Um, second six repetitions might be right. Keep them within touching distance, but not shirt tight. Yeah, just not. Don't be right too tight. To but then the third six, the third six repetitions, the last six repetitions might now be right. Here we go. I want us to just let them play. Just sit off and just maintain your shape and just screen them from going forward or whatever that might be. So now there's some different scenarios that the opposition might come up against. And then you might do an additional six off the back of that where it's like, right, right, free for all, play or play any way you like, but just based on the previous 18 repetitions and the three groups of moot types of uh I guess scenarios that we've had ask you you know maybe just delve in deeper and ask yourself right what might you have done in which in which circumstance and why have you done this? so coming back to your initial point having a deeper understanding of why i think is a, is a real key bit here
3: yeah 100 no no definitely and again it's like as you said also it's the context everything comes back to context like i've seen there's some coaches that use final third patterns which i don't like but they tell me they do it for confidence it's match day minus one they want to use final third pants to get the, the attackers feeling the the, the striking the ball or dealing with process into the box and stuff and, and they've got a point so I can't argue with that. They want to get the players feeling more confident. No doubt when a player scores goals which is easier to score goals unopposed than opposed so when they score more goals they're going to increase their confidence so in terms of meeting the objective that they set they've done it my question is always then can we set better objectives?
2: Well this is the question I was about to ask because I think at the same time are we then maybe giving them a false sense of confidence in that if they're If we're not, but if the players are looking at that and saying, yeah, this is developing my confidence, um, I would argue that maybe they're a bit shallow in their thinking in that they know it's an unopposed practice, but they're still developing confidence from it. Surely the player would want to understand, actually, no, I've been able to do this and the practices have been opposed. Now that's confidence for me.
3: Yeah, I think it goes back to context, doesn't it? Like, if you're if you're on a match day minus one and you've got a Champions League game the next day, like, the would you take a false, false sense of confidence? Would you take that over potentially none because you can't do maybe opposed work on a match day minus one when they're played on a Wednesday? So, do mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It always, it always yeah, goes back yeah. to context. I think we're on the same page. I think, look, the it's always got to be objective and have a reason for it first. And then if you can do it opposed, you're going to get more transferable benefit what I call cognitive fidelity you're going to get more transfer into a game uh, if you do it opposed but we understand there are situations where you can't do it uh can't do it opposed or you're looking for different outcomes
2: I totally agree but you know, let, let's come back to you know speaking of context so you know we've, we've explored some of your time at Watford some of your time there at Spurs and some of the things that you maybe picked up there um what was it that made you feel like okay I need to I need to take that next step and move potentially into um, academy football because obviously you talked there about your next move being into Dagenham. Um, how did that come along, and you know what was the kind of thinking around that?
3: T- yeah, I think I think watching academy football for while I was at Tottenham, so being around the environment and seeing the staff and seeing the way they worked, you just there was this just opinion that academy football was going to be the next step. It had to be something I progressed to, um, and yeah, I think Dagenham Redbridge was a really good opportunity because it was local to me. It was only twenty minutes away. Um, and yeah, like, and then Michael was Michael Hyder's one who took me there and like, yeah, he was fantastic for me. So to go and work with him and if you know him, or I'm, I'm guessing even on your podcast, you could get a sense that he's a really strong personality and he doesn't tolerate anything that's outside of what he wants. And that was a very tough, tough experience for to me. But did that give me the strength to go and do the things I've done since? Because he would tell you when you did something wrong, straight to your face and no joke, no laugh, no, no softness, just tell you straight, but honest. And I didn't really have that in football before. Like, you have it at home or you have it with family or whatever, but you didn't have it in football. It was quite a soft, you know, the youth development environment. It was quite soft and pretty, you know, uh, player-centred and all that stuff, coach-centred. But, uh, but yeah, Michael told me straight. And a lot of occasions where I wasn't doing the right thing or I wasn't following the methodology or even things like, I remember one time on tour, I think I was, I was coaching under-15s and there was another coach who was coaching the 16s. And then our 15s and 16s joint team went on tour and we all went together. And then I couldn't coach the team. The the 16s coach coached the team. And I remember throwing a strop, like I had enough. I was miserable, I was in a bad mood. And I think he just said something like, Michael, you're throwing a strop. You're acting like a child because you're meant to be a professional. And he just reminded me, you're you're a coach. Your emotions can't take over your behaviour. And that was huge for me. It sounds crazy, but I think I was like, yeah, 24, maybe 23, 24, I was still quite childish in that sense. Oh, they're my players. I should be coaching them. But that experience of someone being so harsh for me was massive because now you go into like more challenging environments and you've already been set a standard of behavior and a standard of success and a standard of like what being a winner looks like. And he's one thing. So you can't argue with some of the the lessons that he was teaching at the time. So that was, yeah, that was, those were the reasons why I went in and maybe the key lessons I took. But yeah, great experience working across all the age groups, um, lead foundation phase at one point. Uh, coaching the 15s, helping with the 16s, going with Michael with the 18s, and yet, yeah, and then seeing the first teams all like seeing the full spectrum. It's very rare you get the opportunity to see all of that in one experience.
2: Uh, definitely. I think, you know, you, you, just talk a little bit then about how important you think that is. That I have a good blend of experiences across the different age groups, or whether, um, you know, people might be best served just having a clear understanding of maybe where they want to be working. And for for you know, for a lot of people, they might assume that a lot of people want to work in the senior game, and actually, some people are just really passionate about working with younger age groups or the youth development phase, even. So you know, maybe just talk about how much of an impact that had in terms of the blend of experiences that you had within that time, but also whether you think that's the best way to go about it.
3: Yeah, I think yeah, it's tough. I think one thing that strikes me or reminds me is a. Uh, John McDermott at Tottenham, who was the academy manager at the time, I remember when I asked him about if I was going to get an opportunity to come up to the academy or what does it take, etc. he said the one thing you have to go and do as a coach is go and see the development journey all the way through. So see a player that's 8, 9, 10, 11 years old and see him progress to 16, 17, 18 and see what that looks like. Because I think as coaches we can be quite naive until we've seen that full journey. You think that the under nine, under nine you meet is going to be a superstar think the under 12 that's like really tall is always going to be tall and struggle with his coordination and actually when he's 21 he's an absolute physical specimen because his physique has expanded and he got comfortable with his coordination there's there's so many lessons you learn um and probably the biggest thing you learn is that you can never be sure. you think you've got a superstar you think you're doing the right thing for them but you don't know you you play off probability so you hope that you're closer to the end of guaranteed success but you're not a guaranteed success and you never will be You don't know what's going to happen in that child's life or that player's life in two years' time, in three years' time with their family, a divorce, someone passes away, a sickness, a physical growth. Uh, There's so many things that happen that you're never going to be guaranteed success. It's just about playing the odds of doing the things that are most likely going to help them get there.
2: No, I totally agree with that. I think it's often having an understanding of those things that could be impacting on the player, both before and after, I guess, the current stage they're at that will have a massive impact. I think a lot of coaches are too busy thinking about the now sometimes rather than understanding, right. Okay. Where's this player come from? And actually rather than thinking about what success might look like as an under 13, where does he need to be at 14 or 15? Cause that, that, I think that then changes the, that then changes the, you know, the, I guess the goalpost a little bit. So kind of just talk to you, how, how long did you spend at Dagenham and Redbridge and, you know, I think before we, you know, before we kind of digressed into all of this stuff, we were talking, or just got up to the point where you've just taken your flight out to Zambia.
3: Yeah, so I went, so I left, uh, no, I was still working at Davon Redbridge, but we were off for Christmas, so I went to Zambia on holiday. Went to Zambia for two weeks, and then, um, as I said, I was going through the British coaches' abroad and looking at what the other people were doing, and when I was there, just talking to some people. Uh, Then, yeah, as I said, I went home, packed my stuff, booked a flight, and and then went and moved there. And I think I stayed in a hotel for the first day, slept there. Then an agent came to meet me the next morning. An agent took me to a, a guy that just bought a new club, uh, I sat down with him. I was, I was teaching him football through chess because he didn't know much about football. I was using his chessboard in his, in his big office to try and explain, like, where the goals are, what, what the objectives are. Uh, and, yeah, then, like, from there, he asked me to be technical director. Or I had an interview process with the, the board members, went to be technical director, Head coach eventually left. I took over as head coach, and had just like a crazy experience that I was so privileged to be so young uh, and have at the time. I mm-hmm. think we, I think, yeah, yeah, just a very, very privileged person at the time to be able to have that experience. But obviously, I took the risk in leaving England and packing everything and quitting my job and going.
2: I think sometimes you need to have you need to back yourself, don't you? You need to have put that faith in yourself that you're you're, you're going to overcome that challenge. So I guess you know. You, range of experiences up to that point already but you know you spent five years in zambia is that is that correct and i spent a year in
3: zambia and then a i was four years right after that. four years
2: in south africa okay so in that time there's probably been a, a hell of a lot of challenges that are much greater than you just leaving your job and packing leaving the country oh. so you know to talk to us about that you know what was what that look like so you've been a year in zambia four years at uh, in south africa what hap- you know what happens in that time frame
3: uh, a lot. So Zambia, Zambia, there was financial problems. As I said one of the challenges obviously of taking the risk is you go to other countries where it isn't as financially stable as it is in the UK. Um so lots of financial problems, stopped going to work, and then went on holiday to South Africa to see what that was like because the South African League is one of the strongest in on the on the continent. Um went to South Africa on holiday, fell in love with South Africa as a country, not just from a football perspective, but I love Zambia and I love the people of Zambia, South Africa as a country. Uh, fell in love with that like after three or four days here um and then I was on the job hunt for three months unemployed and my money was just dwindling like I sold all my furniture and stuff in Zambia so that was just like my get-by money uh hunted for a job meeting with agents meeting with staff like and then I was there for three on a three-month visa and maybe two or three days before my visa expired I got a job I got a job offer which was, yeah, and I, there's so many times I'd contemplate giving up and leaving because I was getting nosed, I was getting ignored. I think my LinkedIn, I, when I went back to show someone the other day and there was like, I don't know, a thousand messages over a period of like a month on LinkedIn. It was just going crazy um, to try and get the right uh, role and network, network with the right people. Uh, and yeah, then I got a job as a technical director at the youth club. So not ideal because I wanted to be a head coach. But at the time I thought, why can't I be a head coach? I'm 26 years old, I should be a head coach. Um, but slowly realised that I've got a lot more experience to gain. Um, so, yeah, it was technical director at a youth club. Uh, and then I went to be a first team analyst and a reserve team coach and first team coach in the end at Orlando Pirates, which is one of the biggest clubs on the continent, a really big club, big name, high pressure. Never felt anything like that in my life from a number of fans. I mean, we have 90,000 at our big games in a year. Like, it's just a crazy, crazy experience. Um, so, yeah, real... That was
2: the first time I really felt what pressure was in the football environment, and I can imagine it only gets bigger. Yeah, no. So I was just going to say on that, then you know, what was that like? And you know, what I, you, you face those challenges. You know, having the pressure of trying to find that job. You you sort know, you out your visa. You got you know financial issues here over here, and there's a whole bag of things going on. How do you stay? How would you stay calm? How you, do you keep yourself going? Because obviously, you know, I think quite a lot of people that get to those parts there where. You know, the reality is adversity is going to hit all of us in some way or another, whether that's, uh, you know, getting hit by a car, whether that's, you know, you, have, you, 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 know, you get an injury and you're in hospital or whatever that might be, or whether a family member's passed away or whether you lost your job. It's, it's going to happen to anyone, to everyone. In fact, how did you deal with that?
3: Oh, I, I don't know. I did not lot. There's probably a few loads of small things that I did. I mean, one of them is I was videoing myself in those moments. So I've got videos of like where I was living at the time, and I've got pictures where I was sleeping on like so where I sold all my furniture. I was sleeping in like a little passageway with like a mattress and a fan. That was like all I had and my clothes in a suitcase. So like I remember at the time I was like, let me take pictures of this, let me take videos because one day I'm gonna look back and this is gonna be part of my story. And that's what I keep telling myself. And even now, like if I resign from a job or I'm finding it difficult for a period of time. Um, I still tell myself, like, this is part of the story. And it's just come now where, like, there's so many stories to tell from all of the hardship and the adversity. Yeah, I think obviously using people also, like, I speak to a lot of people. Luckily, I've got, like, good family support and good support from friends. So they've always said to me, no, keep going. Times when I wanted to fly home and just give up, they're like, no, no, keep going. And I guess the biggest thing is once you've given up so much, there's only one way to go, is to keep going. Like I sacrificed so many family events and seeing I've not seen family for two years now because of COVID. So like you've given up so many things that like there's only one way you can't give up now. It'd be like crazy for all the stuff you've sacrificed. My niece and nephew's birthdays and like it's just so many small things that you wish you were there for, but people passing away that you couldn't go to funerals and stuff. It's yeah, it's been a lot, but yeah, you go so far. It's like, well, how can I go back now? I can't go back. Mm
2: -hmm. No, I, t- I totally get you. Uh, so you know, let's let's talk then. You know, you, you've four years with the Orlando Pirates. Is that correct? In a range I of three years, three years Orlando
3: Pirates. Pirates in the range uh, Eighteen months with uh, the previous club.
2: Right. Okay. You mentioned that obviously Orlando Pirates. Are, you know, is a, it's a very well-known club. Um, probably is one of the biggest uh, in, in in on the continent. Why leave?
3: Yeah, I think I'm I'm addicted to progression. I think if I have one addiction or one problem in life, it's progression. Like, I have to be moving in a direction, positive. And there's times when I've tried to, like, now meditate and I've learned new skills to try and relax and be more in the moment. Like, my partner helps me a lot. She's, like, much more uh, calm down and, like, take life, like, live in the moment more. So then I'm always, like, chasing something.
1: Mm. So
3: I think for me, like, the big thing is... Yeah, I'm addicted to progression. So when I felt like I wasn't progressing, as I mentioned before, that's why I wrote my book because I needed to progress. I needed to keep learning and keep growing. Once I wrote the book, it was kind of like, what's my next progression? There wasn't one. Um, so, so I decided to start looking for a job elsewhere. Um, and I left the club on good terms, but it was very difficult to leave such a big club and say, you're actually not going anywhere. Like I'm resigning. I'm not, I haven't got another job offer. I've got nothing lined up. I'm just, I need progression. So I up resigning, but then I think like maybe two months later, three months later, another job offer come, which was for the city group in Belgium to go work at the club Lommel. So that was a huge, off again, off of another high risk thing of resigning without a job. And then going a few months without work again, it was like, right, another amazing opportunity came. So so it's very difficult to leave because of the size of the club and people thought I was crazy. Um, but yeah, you know, in your, I knew in my heart that I wasn't progressing, so. Mm. the time came you have to step and move forward
2: no I totally agree so then talk through that you've ended up at Belgium what was the role there and you know how did how did that look for you on a day to day and you know you weren't there for too long were you I was there
3: for six months I was I went there as first team coach and analyst so it involved being on the pitch uh, during the sessions but also doing post match and opposition analysis um, so I was so again another good experience of delivering opposition analysis and delivering analysis to senior players they've got players, the level of player that I worked with there I hadn't worked with before. They had a a player that the season before was playing against Man United uh, um, in, I think, Champions League. uh, Champions League or UEFA Cup, but he was playing in Man United the year before. We had, like, under 20 Brazilian players that were coming that were just, the calibre of quality is just unbelievable. Players that had played for Man City's first team previously that had come. So, yeah, there was, the calibre of player was huge. So, really important experience to be on the pitch with them every day and then uh, be delivering presentations to them and giving yeah. them individual feedback and individual development programs. Um, yeah. So that's what day-to-day roughly looked like. We were playing in the second division in Belgium, uh, finished third in the league, but the, the main objective was development. It was never uh, win the league. It was always primarily get the players ready to play for Manchester City or one of the bigger clubs in the city group. Um, but yeah, it a absolutely huge experience uh, from a, from a day-to-day learning perspective, worked with a great head coach, uh, great assistant coach great goalkeeper coach like top level people
2: brilliant brilliant so then you see six months there you've then where, where did you go next quite a big role wasn't it
3: resigned again yeah resigned again uh, <laughs> resigned again again the same feeling of like i've got to be uh, got to be challenged got to be, got to be going in the right direction resigned again went unemployed for a bit again then went to egypt as a national team coach and analyst uh, which I did in September, to uh, not yeah mid September um, until uh, December just now, then resigned again. So I'm now unemployed again. The cycle continues. You can see the trend, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, just, some people probably look at that and be like, right. At what point does this guy become committed to something?
3: Mm, no 100. percent The thing for me is that from the challenge I've got is I was head coach at 25 years old. Now, i all been in the Zambian Premier League, but I was a head coach. I was running everything. I was running day-to-day programmes. Uh, I was running where we're going to fly, where we're going to take the bus, how long the travel is going to be, everything, hotels. So I was involved in all those processes. And then now when you step into other roles where you now can't interfere in those things, you've got to kind of do your job in this little shell. and And obviously from a without, I don't want to come across arrogant, but with a strong educational background and having worked with some really strong coaches and managers before, it, mean, it means that I'm always quick to critique and say, why is this being done like this? Why is this being done like that? And there's no right or wrong way, of course, but I think the point that I've got to in the last year or two is that I've kind of got my own way now
0: mm.
3: and I actually need to implement my own way. That's the only way I'm going to be satisfied is when I'm testing my own way and finding out how good that
2: is. Mm. Um, so yeah. yeah,
3: that's where... Yeah, that's where yeah, I, I'm
2: mean, I guess the question is then, you know, you- what does your what does your next step look like you know what do you what would you want that role to be do you, do you anticipate going back into a head coach role can you do you anticipate being able to i guess work under someone else now or where does that leave you
3: yeah I, get, I can only work under someone that i feel like i align with i think that's the challenge that i've had is that whilst i've worked under the great coaches and the coach of uh, head coach at Longmore is now the mk dons head coach fantastic manager like top level manager like i'm sure he's gonna have lots of success Carlos Queiroz, the Egyptian national team. I can't question his CV. He's been the head coach of Real Madrid. So, working with these people, I can't question uh, what they what, what their methods are and what they want to do. But I just think, for me now, it's the time to to go and step out and test what I know. Because you know, what's been done in the past doesn't mean it's the best way. Because it had it's had success, already, so it doesn't mean it's the only way to go forward. There's new ideas. There's new ways of working, which I want to test uh, and implement. And the only way I'm going to do that is by going out to do it i think there's one or two coaches i align with that if they did get a head coach job and me to go i would go but it's only because i know that we're very similar in the way that we think
2: right 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 so i mean obviously you've got you know you've got the african cup of nations very shortly would you not have maybe thought that you could maybe stick around for that and get that experience as well and, and maybe see what that can bring for you
3: yeah lots of people said that look but this thing is ongoing the problem is like the mentality of just wait is really dangerous. So if I didn't yeah. leave then and I waited, they went to Arab Cup in Qatar in December. Um, great competition, using all the World Cup stadiums, top facilities. People were saying just wait till after the Arab Cup, and I was like, okay, that's a, that's one idea. Then what happens after the Arab Cup? Just wait until Afcon's finished. Afcon's coming. Okay, then you think about okay, I wait till Afcon. Then you go okay, but World Cup qualifiers are in March. So actually, do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, when is the point exactly, yeah. No, the cycle continues. So I've left a lot of jobs at times where people think maybe you're crazy. But um, but my my number one point is if you're not happy, you're not going to do great work.
0: Yeah.
3: And I'm happier I'm doing coach education full time here, like freelance that I'm doing at the moment. Then I am working in an environment where the environment's great, but it doesn't it doesn't align with my what, the way that I think.
2: Yeah. Nice. that's full of
3: frustration, especially when you move country. One thing people don't understand, and I have to explain this to my family, is that. It's one thing to do a job in your home country where after work you're frustrated, but you go see your, your family, you go spend time with your uncle, your cousin, your mum, your dad, whatever. But it's very different being isolated in a country where I had no one around me outside of work to yeah. talk to or to be around. So you're literally 24 7 in football.
2: Yeah, and I think then it becomes even more important to be doing something that you're actually passionately enjoying.
3: 100 percent. so so yeah the key for me is like if you're not ta- like i've always taken risks and not everybody's in a situation to take risks because you've got maybe children or you've got debts mm-hmm. or a mortgage and things like that but i've always been of the opinion like if you're not if you're not growing and you're not happy then move on
2: yeah and i totally agree with that okay. so i guess on that then you know you're talking there about some of the things that kind of you live by there essentially you know i'm really interested to know you know you've had quite a journey in terms of you know it's, it's definitely been the scenic route um which is which is which obviously has its benefits as well but in, i'm sure you've met you've met a range of coaches with different styles and different cultures and whatnot Well, who would you say has been your major influences in your journey so far then and what would you say that some of the biggest lessons that you picked up along the way that, uh,
3: that's a lot so the first thing is what i just mentioned most importantly is that happiness and growth are fundamental in the career so like you're not going to grow if you're not going to grow in the right direction if you're not happy and you're not going to be happy if you're not growing so that's maybe one of the the core things for me um i think there's that question that i said to you earlier i will need to i need to put out there that i think coaches will benefit from so i, I always ask people like what's your real passion and people will say to me uh football coaching and i always ask them is it football or is it coaching because they're two very different things i say like if you want to go get a lawyer right because you're you want to buy a house and your to help you with your house You need a lawyer that's passionate about law. It's no good going to someone who's an expert in property and just does law on the side. They need to be passionate about actually the legal side, right? Like a doctor. If you want to go find a heart surgeon, they should be passionate about the heart, but they must understand to be an expert in surgery, right? They have to be. It's not good enough to just have someone who's an expert in the heart and just start, I'm not really bothered about surgery, but I'll do it for you, right? I I totally agree. The question I always ask coaches is like, I said, would you rather be a football analyst or a coach of another sport? If the answer is that you'd prefer to be a football analyst, then you're probably not that passionate about coaching. Because I can't imagine doing anything other than coaching. I would much rather be a basketball coach than be a football analyst. Like no doubt. So it's that it's that thing of be an expert in coaching, not just an expert in football. That's, that's another key lesson along the way. I
2: think, I think I think I think you're spot on there. I think for me, the, the more as time goes on, it, it's as much as it is about coaching. It's also about people development for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that part is really important, having, you know, having been able to have an impact and, and and help people develop and grow. And, you know, even if I go back to my time in the fitness industry where I worked as a PT and worked in, you know, it was just about helping people reach their goals and see them growing and, and develop further. So I think I think you're spot on with that.
3: Yeah, I think if you, if you look at the word coaching and you take away the football element, what is coaching actually about? It's about improving people's lives, right? Like what's a life coach do? Like you go across a number of industries, it's actually about helping people to get better. So, but when you see football coach, all of a sudden we think balls, bibs, and cones. So, but for me, it's actually remove the football part, be an expert in coaching, and then use football as the tool to do that
2: do you know what yeah, i think i think you're spot on because even now like for instance when i'm watching other coaches from different sports or if i'm taking my kids to go and participate in other sports i'm even having conversations with their coach and thinking right okay well mm-hmm. i want to understand Definitely. your methodology i want to understand what you you know what processes and i guess uh pathways that you're looking to kind of explore in terms of the way you coach because at the end of the day coaching is coaching mm-hmm. uh whether it is football whether it's basketball whether it's tennis whether it's martial arts or whatever it is but there is some things that are going to be, you know, universally transferable across all those things. So I think, I think I think, you're spot on. I think you have to be passionate about the coaching piece as well as the football piece. I think the football is almost a vehicle, but the coaching is actually the, is actually the job that's being done, if that makes sense.
3: Oh, 100%. And in terms of, like, the people along the way, I think working with so many different staff members, I can't. I think I've probably lost count how many I've worked with now. Like, there's so many small things I can take from each. So, like... If you talk, we spoke about Chris Ramsey technical detail another level. Took that piece, put it in my locker, realized how important it was, and then try and use it going forward. Michael Michael Hyde on like what it's like to be and create uh, to be a winner and creating a winning environment, creating players that are going to fight and compete. Uh, huge. Take that, put it in my locker. You know, first person who taught me a system or like a way of playing in a game model was Michael. So I take that, put it in the locker. In South Africa, I worked with Rolani McWenna, who was assistant coach at Orlando Pirates, but is now joint head coach at Sundowns. It's two of the biggest clubs on the continent. Like, putting the detail into a game model. So Chris was great from a technical level, but now tactical detail. Rolani McWenna, unbelievable. I've taken that, put it in my locker. Liam Manning at uh, at Lommel was the head coach. Leadership level is unreal. You just, as a staff member, I would have done anything they wanted, anything. You know, the players say I would die for the coach? Like, that's how I felt as a staff member. Like, whatever he needed, I was just going to do. So, his leadership skills, again, I kind of took some of that, put it in the locker. Hopefully, we'll use it moving forward. Well, what does that and look like?
2: Was, just uh, on that, what does that look like? You know, because a lot of people, you know, we talk about leadership, but what was that like for you? What was happening to the point where you felt that, that strongly about how, that how you would respond to maybe his requests?
3: Yeah, I think like, he just spent so much time talking to you as a person before talking about football. And i never experienced it before, in football anyway. Or in sport in general, should I should say. I think the first time, like, you go into the office in the morning and he doesn't even talk to you about football. He's making jokes with you and, like, winding you up. And, and you know, he's doing things that are not even football-related. And then after maybe half an hour, an hour, then he talks to you about football. But he spends so much time getting to know you as a person. And I think he know in the six months I was there, he knows me better than the staff I've worked with over years just by you know just posing questions he digs at you a little bit to make you laugh or to wind you up but it's all about personal skills um and he was always very calm I don't think I ever until needed he needed to get angry fortunately I wasn't one of the ones he had to get angry with very often but always very calm and composed and I think what a lot of us younger coaches do I say us because I'm assuming you're in the same age bracket as me but we tend to we are very emotional right like football and coaching for us is emotional so we are very up and down in our mood and our feeling based on results and things like that whereas he was always very calm always very composed and it means you can trust them a little bit more because it means what they're saying to you is not out of emotion it's always, it's always strategic it's really key
2: yeah okay, okay, okay i think i think as time goes on we definitely do have to start to have a develop a different appreciation and it's not interesting to speak about michael i think one of the things that michael explained to me that he had learned most over the years and Yes, as time's gone and it's just to become a bit more a bit more considerate and more important I think he used the word patient to mm. become a bit more patient um, and I think along with that patience naturally comes up more observation I think you just starts to take a step back and start to reflect a little bit more and think okay do I really need to lose my temper here or do I really need to uh, go in here and do this and do that and I think he's just taking that time and taking a step back sometimes and coming back to what you were saying just taking that deep breath meditating sometimes just thinking it's not worth it I wish
3: he he learned that when I was there because he would batter me. He would come into my session and be like, but what is this? What's going on here? But it was great for me. I needed that. And maybe he identified that Michael needed someone to be really strong with him because Michael was a bit soft as a coach and he was like coming in to try and teach me the the other side. But, but yeah, no, the patience thing is definitely massive. I think it comes with age also. My feeling is that I'm far more patient with coaching than I was when I was like if I go back ten years when I first started, it was just completely different experience.
2: Yeah, no, I think I oh, definitely, I totally agree. I said so, you know you just uh, as you were talking, you, you you was I think you was about to mention Carlos Quirish as well.
3: Yeah, because that that man is meticulous. Like that man is uh, is uh, yeah, it's just meticulous. To, and different meticulous in a different way to other people I'd worked with because he wasn't meticulous so much about coaching but meticulous about management, meticulous about dealing with people and meticulous about scouting and watching the game. I think obviously he's, he's worked with international teams for a long time now. So his eye for scouting players and seeing things. I couldn't keep up. And I watch a lot of football. I used to watch football non-stop, thousands and thousands of games. But uh, his, his ability to watch games over and over again, sometimes we'll be watching a, either a 20-minute reel of a player or, or a full match even at times. And we get to the end of the game and he's like, all right, one more time. He wants to watch it again. He wants to watch the same clips and the same match again because he's he's so keen to pick up every little bit of detail that he can. So just and on that. play in five minutes. Is... I'm
2: really I'm really interested to know when he says, OK, one more time, is there any direction or guidance run right? Why are we looking at it one more time? What are we looking for this time that we didn't see previously?
3: Uh he talks as you go through, he mentions things as you go through, so, you, so you'll find that the second time you watch it, he picks up different points, but it's not so much, I don't think he watches with the sole objective in mind, and I think that's one of the skills, is if I say to you, can you watch the Arsenal-Chelsea game, and tell me how Chelsea defend, it's easy to now just focus and zoom in on that, but yeah, when he no watches, it's like his eyes are everywhere.
2: Yeah. All over more, more, more from a perspective of right you've watched the first time these are some observations i've made does he go into the second uh review of that thinking okay i've made these observations so let me be less conscious about those things and be more mindful of other things instead
3: yeah no i'm sure i'm sure he does but i just think you know like there's some people that are geniuses in their field and you know, like in terms of like management and scouting i think especially scouting the way he watches players, I would say his eye is just a level above anyone I've I've seen or experienced working with. I just think he picks up things so quickly. I was going to say, like, five minutes into a game, he will say, like, check this player here. Like, I'm still getting to grips with the game. I'm still like, what formation are they playing? Who's playing where? And then, like, after half an hour, you see it and you go, yeah, you know what, I get it now. But he just sees, he picks up the cues and triggers of a top player so much better than, I think, than anyone I've worked with and definitely with myself. So that's something that that experience taught me. And hopefully I took away a little bit of that, um, seeing the identifying triggers early and seeing the, what a top player looks
2: like. Awesome, so you know, you know, there's some of the lessons that you've learned, I'm, I'm, keen, I'm keen, right. How old how are you now? Uh, 31. 31, okay, cool. So 31, you've been coaching for about 12 years. Is that fair? No, uh, well,
3: yeah, 12 or 13, yeah, in yeah. between. <laughs>
2: knowing what you know now with all the experience you've had the the, the, you know the dynamic experiences different cultures different countries and whatnot what's one message that you'd want to give yourself if you had the opportunity to speak to yourself now at the start of your coaching journey
3: coaching and management are two completely different jobs that you have to be able to do both but they're completely different the skill set for one does not mean you're going to be good at the other. So I think my biggest thing that I used to look at is if you couldn't coach on the pitch, you weren't a good manager. So I would get annoyed. I'd go watch a coaching session of of, of a high-level coach, go look and I'd be saying, why this guy can't coach, he's useless. And and that that was mine. It was such a bad state that I was in where everyone was a bad coach. But they were managers. They didn't have to be top coaches because they were so good at management that they got so much more out of the players. So maybe the biggest thing I wish... I don't wish because it was a great experience learning. But if I could say to an 18-year-old now who just started coaching but wants to be a head coach or a manager, understand that difference and divide it very early. Because I didn't start learning about management till I was 25 and had the experience and I knew nothing. I walked into the a head coach in Zambia and the president of the club is sitting in the corner. I didn't even go and greet the president because I'm like, I'm a top coach. I can just go step on the pitch and coach. I don't need to greet the president. Why should I go and greet him? He should come and greet me. Like what a crazy perspective I had thinking that coaching was everything. And then you realize actually a top level manager has such a good relationship with the president that he does come and greet the coach because they've got such a good relationship. You know, there's things there's the level of management that I just had no idea about, which fortunately now I hope I've got a bigger, a bigger perspective of. um, But we'll see. But yeah, maybe that's the biggest thing that I didn't realize at the time.
2: Mm, mm. And obviously, you, you talked there about that being a message to maybe uh, your younger self or a younger coach in general. Um, but what about maybe if you'd like, you know, a, a golden nugget that would be more applicable just to coaches on the general level, regardless of their circumstances? What's one thing that you or a couple of things that you think there? If I, I guess I gave you 60 seconds just to kind of wrap some stuff up there. What would those be?
3: If I was to just throw some out there, one would definitely be live on the pitch as many hours on the pitch as you can. I was coaching three or four sessions a day at times, six, seven days a week. So spend hours and hours on the pitch. If you can, get abroad. If you can, the experiences of learning different languages and speaking to people from different cultures is huge, especially if you're going to work with people in different cultures eventually. So travel, even if it's for short amounts of time, two months, three months, travel, spend hours and hours on the pitch and intentionally study. Okay, that's my last one. Intentionally study go and look don't don't go and search twitter and scroll down your feed for information go and find the things you need to do to become a better coach if you're not good at leadership go and study leadership if you're not good at coaching under 12s go and find the people that are experts at coaching under 12s and learn from them but don't be a passive learner intentionally learn go and find the things that you need to learn to be better
2: no i I totally agree with that mike look it's been it's a really really insightful conversation i'm sure there's a billion and one more things that we can kind of unpack there. And there's a few conversations which will spark a whole debate, I'm sure. But I've really, I've really enjoyed uh, this discussion so far. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I'll be definitely open to having a part two if you're open to it as well. Um, but before we get on to that, listeners, viewers, if they've got anything, if any questions around any of your experience or anything we discussed in this conversation so far, is there some way they can get in touch with you? And if you wouldn't mind maybe sharing some details around. Your book and how we can maybe get access to that.
3: Yeah. So in terms of the book, it's on my website, which is just www.michaelloftman.com, Um which you can get that on uh you can get the Amazon link and get the PDF book on my website if you want to find those. Um in terms of myself my social media links also on the website but my Twitter and Instagram and stuff is just Michael Loftman or Michael underscore Loftman. So it's all pretty simple. Um and yeah like I do coach education. I think I've got like fourteen hundred coaches that I send uh whatsapps out to every mo most mornings when i can with just content i think you know, i sent some to you this morning right of some coaching sessions and yeah. stuff so if anybody wants material or has got questions and stuff as long as they're not asking me which formation is better a 433 or 442 which i i get too many of those and that, there is no answer but anything else general stuff on like experiences and like uh, getting jobs and things like that i'm more than happy to discuss and share awesome
2: well, Mike, look, thank you. It's been a fascinating conversation. I hope, you hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, no, thank you. no. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Network. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care.